go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. I'm so excited for you to meet my next guest, Ruth Simmons. She's an American professor and the former president of Smith College, Brown University, and Prairie View A&M, Texas's oldest historically black college. As a daughter of sharecroppers, Simmons prioritized education and learning and made it a mission to give back to others who came from similar upbringings. Today, she's inspiring generations with her memoir, Up Home, One Girl's Journey, where she shares her story of overcoming poverty and becoming an academic and literary success. We recently caught up for an exclusive interview. She opens up about navigating the segregated South as a black woman and how she handled the pressures of being a leader at some of the most prestigious universities in the country. I'm Jenna Bush Hager. Welcome to another episode of Read with Jenna. Please tell me why you decided to write this book of your life now. Oh, my. Um, You know, I've been a lifelong educator. And I have cared most in my profession about my students. Mm. And they always ask me about my past, what they know of it, and why I turned out the way I did. Because to them, it's kind of irreconcilable. beginnings that I had and what I've done in my life. And I, I tired of answering the question of how I got to be who I am. And I thought, well, the most efficient thing to do is to write about it. And that way I won't have to answer the questions anymore. I still get the questions. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to ask you the questions. <laughs> I still get the questions. But anyway, I want it. It's a gift to my students um, who often feel as if their lives are full of challenges. And I wanted them to know that whatever they encounter, there are ways for them to learn from it, to grow from it, and really to end up doing the best things possible because of it. So you write in a poem that you had many challenges growing up. And it was not only despite the challenges, but also because of the challenges Absolutely. that you're sitting right here with Absolutely. me today. But don't you find that we often uh, grow from the most extraordinarily discouraging things that happen to us? Mm-hmm. And that certainly was true for me. I grew up in the pre-civil rights era where to be Black was one of the worst things you could be. You, were, you had no rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had no capacity to aspire to anything. So that was, that was my beginning. And imagine that environment and being able to take from that environment itself a source of uh, inspiration yeah. and a way of being that will allow me to make my way in the world. So you say that it's the people that loved you. Yes. 
It's the people that loved you and saw something in yes. you as a little girl, as an adolescent, that made you see something in yourself. Of course. Talk about who those people are. Because, you know, when we are in a circumstance like that, how would we know? We can't imagine anything beyond what we see. Mm. And so, first of all, my mother, who was just so wonderful, um, big-hearted, very compassionate. Uh, she had 12 children. Wow. And yet, she went about her work as if um, she was absolutely dedicated to all of us and to the work that she did for us and for my father. And she never complained about it. <laughs> I couldn't understand that as, as a child. So first, her work ethic uh, was something that taught me how important it is to put my full effort into everything. Mm -hmm. And then I had 11 sisters and brothers who tortured me uh, <laughs> when I was young, but who also had uh, a way of supporting me when, when I needed that. But most of all, I should say, it was the teachers, the teachers. When I went off to school for the first time and this woman, Miss Ida Mae Henderson, welcomed me and pretended that I was the best thing in the world, I, I just thought that must be true. You, believe, you believed <laughs> I, her. I believed her. And so my brothers and sisters were telling me I wasn't really anything at all, right? All my older sisters and brothers. And here was this woman who said, oh, you're so smart. Oh, you can do this, you can do that. And then from that point on, teachers that I had all the way up through the 12th grade were the most wonderful people in the world dedicated to students, convinced that times would change mm. and that there would be a time when I could soar. Uh, I couldn't believe that myself. They believed it for me. Mm. I love that. So take me back. Um, you do this so beautifully in your book to your childhood home. Take me back to living in Texas in the, the late 40s and 50s, and what was your life like? Well, so hard for people to imagine today, but um, the postscript to slavery was sharecropping. Mm -hmm. And so my parents were sharecroppers, which meant that they were field hands, basically, who lived on the owner's land and who worked the fields. That, that was their life. But what was also true is that child labor was a part of that system. And so all of my siblings would go to the field along with my mother and father to pick cotton and so forth. That was, that was our life. And on the uh, sharecropper's farm, there were many families doing this work, um, but we had minimal resources, I would say. Um, a shack, really, yeah. uh, to live in, and um, no uh, no amenities whatsoever. No running water. Oh, no, no. No electricity not. to read. Well, no, 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 no. Oh, my goodness. That would have been extraordinary. We had lanterns, oil mm. lanterns, and we had wells, and carrying well water from the well was a big deal mm. as a chore, um, but it was very hard living, very hard living. And um, in spite of that, there was joy in it. And mm. I was the happiest child because I was surrounded by all these siblings and my parents. Uh, and um, 
I was with them all the time. Imagine, I think about the children today who have working parents and, and so forth, but I was with my family all the time. And so I was surrounded by love and support from the time I was born. And I can see now that that made all the difference in the world in terms of my becoming someone who could be self-assured and comfortable with who I was and what the future could bring to me. I know it's so interesting that some of the other resources weren't there, but you had love in spades. And it seems like that was all you really needed. Yes. Well, I think that if every child can have caretakers who hold them close and give them comfort at that moment, early moment in their life, it makes a big difference for the future. And then you went into your first school, your first classroom. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the feeling that learning, that exploring the curriculum and and meeting other kids, that feeling of of being seen by your teachers, what what that meant to you? Well, you know, frankly, um, at home, we had no light. We had no utensils. We had no books. So walking into that classroom and seeing it stocked with books and pencil and paper, that was the first thing that I noticed, is that here was a place that was prepared for the kind of work that I could do with my mind. Now, in my family, the most important thing, even today, that one can do is work with your hands. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing mind work, you're loafing. You know, you're not doing anything, really. And they will still tell me today (laughs) that I have not worked hard in my life because I haven't had to work hard as they have had to work hard and because I don't get in the kitchen every day and cook. So they still look askance (laughs) at what I do. But imagine that I thought, okay, mind work must be very important. Mm. And that convinced me that that's something I wanted to be with forever, right? Mind work. Um, And so putting things in my mind, uh, the ability to be curious and not apologize for it, the ability to have your head in a book Mm -hmm. and not apologize for it. My older sister went to my mother and complained that there was something wrong with me because I always had my head in a book. And she thought that that I I had some kind of problem, uh, emotional problem or (laughs) mental problem because I didn't go outside and play the way other children did. And so, so, but I was enthralled with the idea that I could read and I could study and I could learn things And that was a way for me to answer the segregation that was a part of my life. I couldn't go certain places and I couldn't do certain things, but learning, I could do anything. There Mm. were no barriers. I love that you could also pick up a book and escape to a world that you may never get to travel to, although... Now you've gotten to travel, I'm sure, extensively and be in a different world. See, meet different people, see different things. Did that feel like an escape in some ways for you? Um, It felt like a journey Mm. that I could otherwise not take. Um, It felt like a freedom 
that I could otherwise not have. Because keep in mind that we didn't think of ourselves as being free in that era. Yeah. And we weren't uh, because fundamentally we had no rights. We had no rights to go to restaurants. We had no right to go into stores. We had no rights to be educated and all of that. So I, there was no freedom. So it, it felt, it gave me a certain freedom. And I guess it felt like rebellion because whatever I knew about the impediments to what I could do, I knew that in learning I could do anything anything. And so it was quite, it was exciting to me that I could do anything in the realm of learning that was open to me. You say you wrote this book for your students, but it seems to me also in reckoning yourself, like, how did I get here? The first line I I loved, um, you say this, you say, I was born to be someone else. Someone, that is, whose life is defined principally by race, segregation, and poverty. Yeah. But here you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in some ways, is this sort of a, a reckoning of self, too, to look back to see yeah. that little girl and now see where you've come? Yeah. Partly, I, people ask me all the time to explain how it happened, right? Um, and at the same time, I think just as in that section you read, I do sometimes pause and think, how is it possible for me to have had such a happy life Mm. when as a child, I thought I was consigned to the worst of all possible worlds? Mm. How is it possible for me to have risen to the top of my profession when as a child, I thought I couldn't have a profession? How is it possible for me to have embraced so many people who are different from me when as a child, I was prevented from knowing people different from me? So it is, it is often that I think back and I, it kept, I catch my breath for a bit because it's such a long distance to have traveled. Yeah. yeah. If we were to look at your bio or maybe your Wikipedia page, you have had so many firsts. Um, what does that feel like? Um, well, it's not difficult to have first when the world has defined you so narrowly mm. um, and defined everybody like me so narrowly. And so in the era of when I came along, there would have had to be first mm-hmm. because it simply wasn't done. Um, And so I think we're still going through that Mm -hmm. with different groups, with women, with people of a certain age, with people who have um, certain sexual preference. We're still going through that today, proving that we are not confined by certain descriptors, okay? Mm -hmm. We are who we are and what we make ourselves to be. And the world is available to us in full if people will just let us be that. So um, when I first became president of Smith, I would say it felt challenging to me because I didn't see myself in the vein of Barbara Bush Mm -hmm. and all of the women who Mm -hmm. had come through uh, women's colleges before. And I thought, I'm not that person. I'm somebody different. How can I represent them? I didn't see myself as representing um, the elites mm-hmm. um, of the country. 
And so at the same time, although I didn't see myself representing them, I thought it would be terrible if I really messed up. <laughs> because, because you were, because there were others to come after because you. Because there were others to come after me. And what if I messed up? There would not be another one for a long time. Yeah. And so to be a first, you always feel that you're, you're risking everything for the people you represent. And you're terrified that you won't do well enough to welcome them into the fold. Mm. And so that's something that I felt um, both at Smith and at Brown. And when I became the first president of an Ivy League university, that was, that was so puzzling to me. Um, because first of all, I've been desperately poor. Yeah, I've been on the outskirts of society. Um, I've been told what I cannot do. And then to be elevated to a position of leadership of the most elite yes. institutions in the country, how, how can that be? What does it say about us if, um, if that can happen? So I was puzzled by that and afraid again that I would not be able to succeed at it. Um, but you know what helped me greatly, both at Smith and at Brown? What? The students. <laughs> the students who loved me, who uh, gave me their support, who encouraged me constantly, because in part, they knew my story. Yeah. And somehow my story, my journey to those positions, really um, had an impact on them. And because it did, they really wanted to help me uh, and they helped me and it made a huge difference to me. Well, and it's so smart because that's the reason you were there, right? Yes, yes. For those kids. For those kids, exactly. I, I also, I think it's really important that you shared your history, that you talked about where you came from, that you weren't nervous that they may think differently about you. Well, I shared it very reluctantly though. Do, you did. Because when I first became president, nobody knew what my background was. All of the people I worked with all the years they had no idea. But as, as you know, uh, when you get into a position like that and you start getting interviewed, people ask you questions yeah. and you have to answer. <laughs> and I started answering um, as to where I came from. And that's when people learned about, uh, about my history. But I was embarrassed by it for the longest period of time. When you're a child of poverty, it's not unusual to feel embarrassed. Yeah. You're embarrassed by the fact that you don't have the right clothes. Mm. You're embarrassed by the fact that somehow uh, other people have been able to make it through poverty, but your family hasn't. You're embarrassed by the fact that your parents have, are not educated. You're embarrassed about the fact that uh, of where you live. And so the burden of poverty often for children is that uh, they're afraid to talk about it because um, they because of that embarrassment. And of course, today, when I look back, I think, oh my God, that's the best thing that happened to me because I was lucky to know what poverty was because I could then relate to so many people Yeah, as a consequence of what I had been through. I didn't realize what a blessing it was, well, yeah. but it was. But, and I do think there, you know, the shame that comes with that. There must have been a sort of point where you thought, 
I'm not going to let my my past impede who I am. Like I want to be proud of those parents that worked so hard. I want to be proud of that family that stood by me. I want to be proud of that joy as opposed to feeling the shame in it. Was there a moment or it just took time? I must say it took more time than it should have because I had a lot of difficulty in the environment in which I worked where people tended to be um, wealthy, Mm -hmm. tended to be uh, very sophisticated, tended to be all kinds of things that all the people I knew weren't. Mm -hmm. And I had some difficulty integrating that um, into who I was. But there's one thing that I did for myself that I'm very proud of uh, that made a difference. And that is, I didn't just leave Texas behind. I went back constantly. And when I had children, I took them back. And I was never separated from my family, ever. And so the fact that I did that almost ritually (laughs) uh, helped me gain confidence in sharing that part of who I am with the world. And of course, all of that um, reluctance is gone now. Um, And it's gone in terms of what I'm able to say about the world that I live in. And, And by the way, the world I live in is not the world that most of my peers live in. I still have friends who are poor. Yeah. I still go to organizations, to communities, to institutions that are frequented by people who are living below the poverty line. So what's important to me is that all of that be integrated. Mm. So yes, I have wealthy friends. I have important friends. I have all kinds of different environments that I've been in. But I also have that. And I want people to understand that you can have all of that together and not be apologetic for it as I was in my my youth. Yeah. When we come back, Simmons shares how she viewed her childhood after landing at a university. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You um, have gone back to Texas now. Yes. And I think took one of the most important jobs that... If you look at your bio, you know, there's Brown and Smith, but you took a job at, is it Prairie View? Yes. A&M. Yes. And I know that that meant the world to you. It did. And first of all, it's important to me to move uh, among these different spheres of my life 
Um, it makes me a better person if I do. And so when I went back, I had planned to retire, but then I was approached about uh, serving as president of a, an historically black college. And of course, my thinking was, well, when I thought about everything that had been done for me mm. by people in Texas, and I thought about the students at Prairie View, much like who I was uh, as a young person, I thought what a horrible person I would be if I said no. And so, yes, I was very proud to do that. But most of the people that I knew professionally thought I had made a terrible mistake and expressed that to me. After leaving Brown, why would you do something like that? Have you lost your mind? Um, no, I'm just living my life the way I want it to be lived, <laughs> moving in and out of these spheres, appreciating them all and seeing what I can do to be helpful in each one. Was going home a beautiful moment in your career? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, First of all, uh, I'm the only one in my family who who left. Yeah. And they pretty much all thought I was, you know, something wrong with me because <laughs> how could I leave home, right? Um, but uh, coming back, I think, gave me more credibility in my family. Um, uh, and... Well, not respect, but credibility. Okay. <laughs> they still think I, you know, I... I there know. must be they, some respect. I, I don't know. I can't find it. Right? <laughs> I can't find it very easily. But they are enormously happy that I came back, first of all, that I reaffirm the value of my family connections and especially what my uh, mother uh, and father did for us and what my teachers at all of these schools that I went to in Houston did for me. Um, yeah, they're, they're happy and I'm happy too. There are so many kids, um, as you mentioned now, who are living below the poverty line. I taught in inner city DC in West Baltimore. And I know that sometimes my kids thought like, there's no way out. And they told me that, right. you know, and there is. There is. But for kids that are feeling hopeless, what do you say? Well, the people who interact with those children have to remember that they have to be hopeful for them. And that often children take their cue from the adults around them. So I say to teachers, um, if you're having a bad day, by the time you walk into the classroom, you had better learn to be the best actor in the world because your children cannot afford to have you discouraged. Mm -hmm. They can't afford to have you negative. They can't afford to have you thinking that things are at a terrible stage and so forth. And that's what my teachers did for me. They made me think that there was something wonderful waiting for me. And I couldn't have believed that without their saying it, without their showing me that there was something positive for me. So as adults, children are watching us. They are hopeful that they can see in our eyes what we think of them mm -hmm. and what we think their future could be. I remember when I asked my mother if I could go to college and she said, um, maybe if we can find the money. I could see in her eyes, she did not believe that it was possible for me to ever get enough money to go to college. They can see it in us. Um, and 
So I just think that young, young people should always have adults who are empowered themselves, sure themselves of a future that's going to be better than the present, and always able to convey that to young people. That's what I try to do for my students. Mm -hmm. They think that this is the worst of all possible worlds that they're in, okay? And then I say to them, oh no, let me tell you what would be the worst of all possible worlds. And, you know, especially in this kind of social environment that we're in right now, where lots of media portray things in the worst possible way, I think it can be enormously powerful to offer positive examples to students. After George Floyd, I wrote a letter to my students saying, we often wonder at moments like this, what we should do. And so I asked myself that, and here's what I've come up with. So I wanted to show them what I was thinking as their president and what I had decided to do as a consequence of what I had learned. So the doing is very important. Giving children something to do that's positive is always a good, has a good result. And it seems like you're still filled with hope. I am. Why would I not be? What gives you hope? People. I tend not to focus on the things that are the most horrific things that I see. I focus on the fact that there are people who are willing and able to change the world. I remember going to India some years ago, and I visited the ashram of Mahatma Gandhi. And they were very excited because she was an African-American visiting, and they wanted to tell me about the fact that Martin Luther King had been there. And so they said, uh, he asked if he could spend the night in the ashram after Mm. it closed. And they allowed him to do that, and he did. He spent the night there. And he came back to this country with the resolve to use nonviolence to overturn practices that were unjust. Think of that. I mean, there are people like that who are imbued with enough love for the world that they just want to bring about change. I still believe that those people are more numerous than people who want to destroy the world. And so um, as long as they are there, I will ever be hopeful, as long as there are people who want to work toward Uh, beneficial change. Why should we not be hopeful? And I know this book in some ways is a call to action. You say we all have a role to see these students, no matter where kids are born, who they're born to, what they look like, who they love. We all have a role to play. Absolutely. Absolutely. what, What can we do? Well, I try to say in this book that the most important thing that we can do is every day to remain open-minded, to be open to learning from everything. Some of the worst experiences I had were the ones that galvanized me to do what I've done. So whether good or bad, we can find ways to learn from what happens to us, to learn from people. And especially, I think, from people who are different from us, people with different views, people who look different, people who think differently, and so forth. We have got to get beyond our clannish habits and begin to embrace people for the humanity they bring. 
because most of our learning will take place from other people. And that's why I say to my students, as soon as they start college, I always tell them, welcome to this campus, but don't believe for a moment that you can predict what will teach you the most here. It could be in your classroom and a vaunted professor, but it also could be the janitor who cleans your room. Mm. Be open to every opportunity for learning. And if you do that, then you're going to be fine. Gosh, such good advice. And also sitting across from somebody having tea, you never know what you're going to learn. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When we return, Ruth talks about how buying the land she grew up on impacted her life and dives into the meaning behind the title of her book. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So you um, inherited but then bought the land that you lived on as a, as a child. What does that mean for you? It means that I've taken possession in full of the legacy of my forebears. They struggled mightily to buy that land at a time when Blacks could not really scrape enough together to buy anything. And they provided, by buying that land, a way for us to live beyond their initial means. And so to me, it means I hold on to that symbolically for what it means for our family. I hold on to it for what it means for me uh, in gratitude to my grandparents and my parents who suffered so greatly. Um, And I hold on to it as a way of saying, whatever we do to each other, whatever we suffer as human beings, time heals. Mm. Time corrects for all the things that we do. And that's what that land means to me, that it is something that solidly represents the journey that my family has made from those dark days um, in the 20s and 30s and 40s to uh, today. So why did you title your book, A Poem? For those of us from East Texas, uh, Northeast Texas, who moved to Houston, my hometown is North. And when we say we're going there, we say up home. We're going up home. So it's become a way of saying 
we're returning to our roots. We're going back to where we grew up. We're going back to what is meaningful to us, a poem. And that's what this book does. Yeah. Returns to the place you were raised. Yes. To that little girl. Do you feel like that little girl could ever have imagined the life that she's lived? Oh, of course not. Oh, no, 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 no. I could never have imagined that I would. You know, everybody that I knew when I was growing up, all the women I knew were maids. I thought I would be a maid. And there's nothing wrong with being a maid at Mm -hmm. all. Uh, but that's what I thought I would be my life uh, and that I would follow the path uh, that I had seen others follow and work at uh, low-paying uh, mm-hmm. jobs and struggle all my life to make ends meet and so forth. But this whole other world, you see, is something I didn't know about, that the world of the mind, which is just so powerful. and. I think ultimately I decided to become an educator because I thought the magic of that world was beyond compare, frankly. Learning about everything you could learn about, meeting as many different people you could meet. When I was 17 years old, I decided that Texas was too narrow and certainly uh, my neighborhood was too narrow. It was all black. All my teachers were black. I never interacted with anybody who wasn't black. So I got on a Greyhound bus and went to Mexico to live with a Mexican family and to study Spanish at 17 years old. So from the time that I began to understand how powerful it was to be able to do those things and to expand infinitely what one could know and what one could experience, I have been hooked on learning since then. And so I couldn't have imagined that. No, not mind work. Uh, Absolutely not. And you're still learning every single day. And I'm still learning every day. Every day. So what does it mean to you to be the president of an Ivy League school? Well, it certainly means that the environment that I grew up in had evolved immeasurably. Mm. I went from being someone who didn't have the capacity to learn, remember? Because when I was a child, there was certain schools you couldn't go to, most universities you couldn't go to, because we were of lesser intelligence and didn't have the capacity for higher order Mm -hmm. learning. And so here, to become president of an elite university was to say, yes, well, we've destroyed that notion that Black people can't think. (laughs) Okay, So, so that was one meaning that it had for me. Although At the time I was appointed, some faculty were very concerned about my appointment. Um, And I thought, oh, gee, they're really concerned about my being black. Well, no, it wasn't that. They were concerned that I was I was from Texas Mm -hmm. and that I was I was a Baptist. Um, (laughs) So, you know, these notions of what people are concerned about uh, vary widely. And I thought people would be concerned more about my race being the first black president of an Ivy League university. Um, no, I, I, I didn't find that to be so much of the case. What I found was that people were watchful about whether or not I'd be able to do the job as a woman, first of all, and as someone from Texas, 
I mean, this is a northern school, right? Um, somebody from Texas and a woman and somebody who went to a historically black college. I didn't even go to one of these places, right? So how was I going to understand what needed to be done in that setting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you do feel as if you're being watched very closely and judged. Uh, and I think that was probably right. I think I was being watched very carefully and judged. But at the same time, it felt as if I might have been opening the door for other people. And that I cared about most because I wanted to be sure that I could help to definitively erase any notion that African-Americans and women couldn't do certain kinds of things and play a leadership role at places like that. And um, that was that was sacred to me almost, uh, the role that I had in showing what women and African-Americans were capable of. And so I think one might say today that's putting too much uh, pressure. Yeah. pressure, but I don't know. I think that's how ultimately anyone might feel when they are the first to do something, uh, that they've got to do a good enough job that they open the door for others. And that's what you did. One of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking is that you said there was some shame around the way you grew up, that there was some imposter syndrome because you you know, yeah. you know, were in the room with people yeah. that didn't necessarily look like you or come from where you came from. And first-generation college students may be going through that exact Absolutely. same thing. Absolutely. Did, how did you, as, a, as a, the president of, of these schools, look into their eyes and say, like, I see you. I've been there. You know, it was so easy for me with first-generation students because they knew my story and it was automatic to them that they knew I was with them and that I got it, okay? (laughs) When I was president of Brown, I would just, um, I'd go to the student union and I would know that I would go to the corner and I'd stand there and the students would line up for hugs. Um, I embraced them in every way that I could. And in every way to say, you deserve to be here. You're as good as anybody else. And wherever you came from, whatever your circumstances were, you will only be judged by what you do here, not by where you came from. And I think in all of my presidencies, I think students absolutely got that about me, the fact that I knew where they came from and that I was their top supporter. You were there to cheer them on. I was there to cheer them on. So beautiful. Okay, so now will you do me a favor? I loved the way you opened your book. Will you read a little bit of it to us, please? I was born to be someone else. Someone, that is, whose life is defined principally by race, segregation, and poverty. As a young child marked by the sharecropping fate of my parents and the culture that predominated in East Texas in the 1940s and 50s, I initially saw these factors as limiting what I could do and who I could become. That in the end, I did not become the person I was born to be still at times confuses and perplexes me. 
Throughout my 70 plus years, I've been struggling to understand why the early circumstances of my life did not, in the end, define me. I've now come to realize that I have become the person I am today rather than the person I expected to be because of the people I knew when I was young. My family, my teachers, my community. They intercepted my modest expectations, boosted my confidence that the future could be different, and sent me on my way with all the support they could muster. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, that was so beautiful. Thank you. I love talking with Ruth Simmons. She's so inspirational. I hope you found it meaningful as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Read with Jenna. You can find our other conversations with authors available wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please give Read with Jenna a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Make sure to tell your friends about us, and new episodes drop every Thursday. The fun doesn't stop here. Want to join our Read with Jenna community of book lovers? Head to today.com slash readwithjenna to find our monthly book list and to sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on Instagram at readwithjenna. This episode of Read with Jenna is produced by Mion Edwards, Yael Federbush, and Abigail Russ. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Masterilli. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Missy Dunlap-Parsons is our executive producer. And Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. spread the word when you get a fresh hot mccrispy from mcdonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag don't try to wait till you get home always respect hot chicken the mccrispy only at mcdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba